Hello and welcome to Produce Talks, the CPMA podcast. I am your Produce Talks host, Ian Brody. On this episode, we're covering new technology and new innovation across the supply chain. We've got science, we've got AI, we've got apps, we've got robots. Let's get to it. This episode, we have guests from Appeal Sciences, Vineland Research, Motorleaf, and Flash Food to talk about just some of the great technology supporting our industry today. Emerging technologies are created to solve emerging problems. In our sector, businesses strive to innovate and adapt to meet industry demands and consumer expectations, to tackle food waste, to overcome labor shortages, to support the environment, or to streamline production. The reality is, though, is that we're only going to be able to scrape the surface of what is all out there. To learn more about new innovations in our sector, head to the CPMA's innovation website, produceinnovationhub.com. My first guest is Cedric Samaha from Flash Food. And Flash Food is an app that defines itself as a win-win for consumers and sellers, offering 50% off prices for food items approaching their best before date. Cedric, thanks, thanks for joining yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. So I tried out the app earlier this week, and, and I got to say, I really, uh, really liked it. You know, easy to use, good interface. Uh, I like the map where, you know, you could pick which store you're, you're heading to or which store you want to shop at. Picked up some uh, granola and some uh, tomatoes, half price. <laughs> <laughs> Can you expand more on, on the functionality of the app? You know, how, how does it work? Yeah, basically, uh, the app is very simple to use. Uh, one of the pillars of developing the app from early on uh, for us was to keep it simple, work with the store employees uh, to make sure everything we build is easy to use and fits into their day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So colleagues, um, which is what we call the staff at the store level, uh, colleagues will identify items that are uh, surplus food, uh, close to the best before date, which and they can't sell uh, for full price anymore. Um, they'll identify those items, they'll take them aside, they'll take the flash food device, scan the items onto the app, enter the quantity and the best before date, and then basically hit post. At that point, the deals are available on the app for purchase. Uh, customers will get notified uh, of the stores near them um, with deals available. They'll go on, they'll browse the deals, kind of like what you did, Ian, uh, mm-hmm. pick the items they like, pay for them on the phone, go into the store and pick them up at their convenience. Good stuff. Yeah. So, it, and so it's typically, you know, a customer service agent or, or somebody obviously in the store that, that inputs the data and, and puts aside the, the items. Yeah, exactly. So they'll, they'll put them into the app and they'll put them aside in a flash food zone. The flash food zones are usually located by customer service. It's just easier for pickup. Um, so you'll go in, you do your grocery, you'll pay for your regular grocery and on the way out passing by customer service, you just see the flash food zone there. It's usually a fridge uh, and a dry rack. So the fridge is for temperature controlled items, the dry racks for anything dry goods. Uh, you pick up your stuff and you just step to the customer service desk right next to it and confirm your order uh, with a colleague there. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, certainly seemed to, to work out well for me. It was, you know, nice and quick and picked yeah. up my other items first and then uh, went to customer service. And yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty good system for sure. Now, food waste has, has been a big focus for us at, at CPMA this year. Um, you know, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's an issue that particularly impacts the, the produce industry, especially. So what role has the challenge of food waste played in, in the development of flash food? Uh, yeah, I mean, food waste, the problem of food waste has been very central for, for our company. Um, it's really been 
the reason why we got into this. Um, so our founder, Josh, uh, his sister worked as a chef in Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. One night she called him and told him, I just threw out $4,000 worth of food. And she was kind of upset. Um, he started yeah. laughing. And he's like, you idiot, who throws out $4,000 worth of food kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And she told him like, no, this is serious. Like, you know, they don't let us donate it. They don't let us uh, take it home or split it among the staff. Um, so he kind of started looking online and try to, you know, figure out how big this thing is. Um, and then realize how the magnitude of uh, food waste, I guess. Yeah, the, the numbers are staggering for sure. I don't know if you've been looking at articles recently now and like uh, ice shells melting and all that kind of stuff. Um Food waste, for example, if you were to take food waste as a country mm-hmm. in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, it would be the third leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions behind China and the U.S. Wow. People are hungry around the world and we're, here, we're throwing away so much food and contributing to you know, climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it really sounds like it was a central reason for development of, of the app and, and the company as a whole. For sure. And it still is today. I mean, everything we do and anytime we're kind of working on features on priorities and stuff like that you know we take a step back and just look at the big picture and what we're doing and you know what's the best uh, value for our time uh you know to tackle this problem we know we're not going to eliminate it ourselves as a company but mm-hmm. um, our goal is to make a good uh, good impact a good dent into the problem basically yeah and and i mean so it's, it's not just a challenge for consumers or food service it's it's a challenge for retailers for for growers um i know a lot of retailers have, have placed a significant focus on on food waste and and, and tackling food waste. Um, and Flash Food is partnered with Loblaws. What can you tell us about how how that partnership came about and and how it's going? Yeah, um, so Loblaw basically um, had a strategic goal to reduce their food waste. Um, I think by twenty twenty, I believe. Um, and basically, they were looking for solutions to help really start making a quick impact into their uh, operations. Um, and, uh, you know, they came across flash food, which is, you know, a pretty simple, easy to, easy to adopt solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we started the, the partnership with a pilot. Things went very well. They quickly saw the results and the impact. Uh, colleagues at the store loved the, the initiative. Um, kind of when I said earlier, you know, for us, it was very important to always build the app uh, in collaboration with store employees. Uh, they're the ones that would use it every day. If it doesn't make sense to them, yeah, they wouldn't use it. Yeah. So, um, by doing it that way, you know, the the employees at the store during the pilot loved the app. They loved the fact that they don't have to throw away food anymore. Customers were raving about it. Our pilot was in uh, London, Ontario. And, uh, yeah, we, we were dominating the market in terms of, uh, feedback and stuff like that. Customers were loving it. And from there on, it was just a no-brainer uh, to roll it out to all stores. So right now, we are across 402 stores across the country um, under all the different banners Loblaw has. So Superstore, Dominion, Zares, No Frills, all the different Maxi. banners. Maxi, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Covigo. Um, it's been a great partnership. Uh, it's been wonderful to work with the team at Loblaw from you know all the different departments. Um, you know, it, Usually people are... Um, sort of unsure what flash food is, but once we explain it to them within a minute or two, it it clicks. It makes sense, um, and everybody's been phenomenal to work with. Mm-hmm. And and just like most interfaces and new technology, you know, once once you use it once or twice, you usually have a pretty good handle on it. 
Exactly. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's like we said, we kept it simple. So it's easy to adopt and, and use. Yeah. And from a retail strategy point of view as well, it, it gets people in the store. Yeah, for sure. And we, we've already seen that multiple times. Um, customers who've never shopped at a brand. So uh, one story that sticks out in my head is when we first started at the London Superstore, there was a customer that told us, um, I was in the store and he was picking up his items and he came up to me and said, I've never shopped at a Superstore before. I actually used to get intimidated by them because they're massive and I thought, you know, get lost in there and so forth. Mm-hmm. And he's like, if it wasn't for flash food, I would not have stepped into the store. And the first time he stepped in, he actually spent an extra $40, $50 on items at full price in the store uh, just by being impressed with the offering at Superstore. And he didn't know about it before because he just never stepped into it. Um, so that was like one story that always sticks out with, sticks with me because it shows that you know, flash food is great at bringing customers more into the store, especially ones that have never shopped at that particular brand and allows the customers to browse the aisles and pick stuff up because they're already there, right? They made the trip. Yeah. So what would you say have been some of the challenges in growing the app? Yeah. So we've been at this for about three years now, or just over three years. Um, and honestly, the biggest challenge uh, for the last <laughs> It's funny because our growth has really exploded since uh, a year ago kind of thing. But uh, before that, really, the biggest challenge has been convincing grocery, grocery executives to sign on with us and you know deploy this across their stores. I think food waste wasn't as big of an issue to retailers as it is today. Um, mm-hmm. And we always knew the wave would come, the social movement wave. And it's just here it is now. Um, but you know, for the last two years, they were really trying to, um, convince grocers that this is something like that food waste is a real problem and they need to address it. Um, and then, you know, getting all the rejections and the no's, but here we are today and couldn't be more happier to have a partner like Loblaw who were one of the first retailers to identify food waste as an issue and do something about it. What would you say is what's next for flash food? You know, are you, Expanding more across Canada, new retailers, uh, new functionality. Yeah, I mean, I think a bit of all three. Um, uh, in Canada, we want to make sure our marketplace with Loblaw is uh, stable. It's uh, continuing to grow, you know, continuing to uh, market our presence to customers. Because I feel there's still quite a bit of customers who don't know that we're there or we're live um, in the stores. So that's kind of the focus in, in Canada. Uh, we are working with uh, multiple grocers in the U.S. to start a rollout out there. The U.S. market, as you know, is, is massive mm-hmm. um, and massive opportunity right there as well with food waste. Um, and then in terms of functionality, we're constantly looking for the next feature to add to the app just to enhance the user experience from both the vendor, uh, so the retailer and the customer side. Um, yeah, so the kind of <laughs> all three angles being tackled. Right three years, it's certainly not, not a long time. It's still a young company as an app and as a, as a new technology. So it's great. Yeah, sure. It felt like an eternity, but uh, (laughs) when you take a step back, it's it's not that long. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for, uh, for joining Cedric. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And my next guest is Scott DeGondon from Motorleaf. We had Scott on the uh, Learning Lounge panel in Montreal back in April uh, with a recording from that that we released uh, in May. Welcome, Scott. 
Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Hi, Ian. <laughs> so let's start off with the, the history behind Motorleaf. You know, how, how did it come about? The company actually officially got incorporated in summer of 2016. And uh, before being promoted as co-founder, I actually joined the company as uh, a hardware intern. So at the very early stage of the company, we were doing hardware and software and a lot of other stuff. And that's very common uh, for a lot of startups when you're trying to find your sweet spot. So in the beginning, we were targeting uh, both greenhouses and indoor farms. And so um, I think one of the um, very interesting uh, turning points for the company was when we went to Vegas for an indoor indoor conference and uh, someone approached our booth. Uh, later on, we found out that he was actually one of the biggest um, tomato commercial greenhouse tomato producer in California. Um, he basically just said that um, he has a lot of data in his greenhouse, but that they're really bad at predicting yield. Now, at that point, I basically just finished my academic um, research at McGill, and it was around clustered neural networks. So for me, it was a very clear description of a problem, and not to mention um, a description of the available tools, i.e. the data. So even before we had a product at that point, I just told the, the grower uh, slash owner of the greenhouse that, you know what, Motorleaf can do it. We'll, we'll build an algorithm for you and we will predict your yield way better than how you're doing it manually. So it started there. A couple of months later, we were able to launch the product and then we tried um, you know, developing the same approach to different clients from different parts of the world. And we are at the point where we have convinced ourselves that this is a viable, repeatable product. And now we're just at the process of scaling up. Now, when you say product... Do you mean mm-hmm. uh, like an AI algorithm or is, is there another piece there? Um, that is a very good question. This is, uh, and, and the reason why I think this is uh, like a very like recurring question that we get is that we're not very familiar with non-tangible items as a product. I mean, software is not a thing, but when you talk about algorithms and, and, and finding patterns in your data, this is something very new, especially in the industry. And, and having been able to, tr- like having traveled around the world in different conferences and visiting greenhouses, I know for a fact that this is one of the things that we have a challenge explaining to our target market. What is mm-hmm. the product? I personally believe that the product is um, the service that we deliver to them. And the service includes how it is delivered to the client. So um, for, for Motorleaf, we've built a system that will develop the algorithm for the client. And the algorithm is always custom built for the client, i.e. their strain and their location. Um, so for us, what the product really is, is a customized algorithm that accurately predicts the performance, i.e. the yield of their plants um, growing in their specific location and the delivery of that um, in a very user-friendly manner is what we believe is the product. Yeah, it definitely seems like an interesting and a unique challenge, I guess, in that, you know, big data and, and AI, I think it, it's not always clear, I guess, or abstract. Um, to people that aren't completely familiar with it. So I'm wondering if like big picture, you can 
try to break down a little bit in terms of how does big data work uh, when it comes to streamlining operations and specifically for, you know, predicting yields and, and uh, that sort of thing for, for greenhouse growers? Sure. Um, so big data just basically refers to an immense amount of data being collected and transmitted at high speed. So today it's everywhere. It's in telecommunications. It's when you use your internet um, service. It's in social me- media. It's in trading. It's, it's, it's practically everywhere. So um, the goal of streamlining your operations, regardless of your um, industry or regardless of the uh, uh, specific application that you're using, um, your technology in um, is just your ability to define your processes so that it's able to trim the fat and it's able to exactly find out what it is you want from big data. Um, uh, you can think of it this way. Imagine you have like 500 uh, pages of papers on a table and you just want to find an answer to one question. Um, streamlining is being able to identify a process that will you know, list down what you have to do first and what is the efficient way to do it. How do you arrange the data? Um, Also, that involves asking very specific questions and looking for very specific answers. Um, Your ability to organize your processes um, around the fact that there's a lot of data is uh, basically what it means for you to streamline your operations. And and it's very important because in our industry, and I'm pretty sure in, in pretty much all industries, streamlining Operations is important because it, the, the whole goal is to eliminate any um, inefficiencies, and inefficiencies always translates to cost and 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 dollar value. Then where does AI factor in? I mean, I, I know that you know the more data there is, the more information there is to feed the algorithm, or you know, for the for the machine to learn. Can you expand a little bit on that side? Absolutely. So. AI is very useful in streamlining your operations because it is able to find patterns that humans would never be able to do. You know, we have data scientists, we hire data scientists to, to um, supervise the algorithm and, and design where the algorithm should start and end. But in between, there's a lot of things happening when you're using AI that you don't really supervise. And this is just how things are designed. And, and, and a lot of the tools around machine learning are designed that way so that they're able to find patterns that no human will have the time or the brain power to do. Mm-hmm. So to us, it's a very clear a combination having, you know, living in a world where there's a lot of data available and using a tool that can find the patterns that suggest the answers to the question that you want to answer. I, uh, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole in, in, in doing a little bit of research on, on AI and, and how it's basically going to ruin the world. Um, but I think this is one of the uh, more, I guess, uh, moral or, or better uses of, of AI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I think we as a society, we've always been very good at policing ourselves. We come up with, with innovations and there's always going to be people who won't use it um, in a very um, ethical way. But we as human beings have a good track record of being able to come up with a process that will curtail it or, or police it or, or, you know, just balance it out. So I'm, I'm very confident that we're, we'll, be do, we'll be doing just fine. Yeah. yeah. And I recall from, from the Learning Lounge, one, one of the challenges that I guess you, you have or and I imagine a lot of other companies that use big data have is basically getting that data or maybe convincing the, the growers or, or those clients that that data is safe, you know, once, once you hand it over. Yeah. But, but I'm happy to say that 
I think, um, well, a couple, it's been a couple of months and, uh, you know, we've already seen a lot of changes in, in the reception of our service. When we approach potential clients, we find it like less hard to convince, um, these clients that, you know, we don't have any, um, uh, ill intentions with their data. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it helps that our product is actually custom built for them. That means that we will never use their data to come up with an algorithm that we will service their competitors, for instance. Um, also, it helps that there's a lot of companies that are trying to build um, useful products in, in, in the market, and that gives AI a good name. So now um, we've, we've always believed that it is our um, obligation to educate our target clients about what we're doing and, and the tools that we're using. And because this is constant everywhere, um, a lot of people are finding it easy to talk about AI. Um, yeah. And that helps us. Yeah, that's helps us because that you know builds our credibility, but also it, it makes them less um, scared about um, about AI. For sure, I, I think people are becoming more more comfortable with it, and um, maybe a bit more conscious when it comes to their own personal data. But uh, you know, I, I think people see the the financial benefits and 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 the ROI, and um, yeah, I think that definitely factors in. Yeah, in. <laughs> um, Using big data and AI solutions to provide greenhouse growers with with a more accurate picture, what does that process look like for the growers themselves? Well, it, it's a range. Basically, there's a lot of growers who are very traditional and are still collecting their data on papers. We've actually encountered a uh, a grower logging things in Excel. Oh no, not Excel files, but ledgers in in Belgium. So. That, there's that end of the spectrum, um, but it's also happening around the world where um, a lot of younger generations of growers are taking over greenhouses. You know, either they've inherited it from their um, uh, fathers or they're hired um, in uh, technical innovation positions in big companies that it's easier to talk about data and, and they already have the infrastructure that records and collects data in a manner that is useful for AI. So we're, we're very happy about that. We've We've found it, it's, it's been becoming very easy to talk about AI and the process of acquiring data. So there's definitely a lot of initiatives taken by um, the clients themselves in making sure that they are collecting data and, and even, you know, um, paying premiums, whatever it takes to make, to make sure that the data is stored um, mm-hmm. in the long term and that it's not going to get corrupted. So what are some of the key data points that help drive accurate forecasting? Very good question. Um, unfortunately, I don't think I'm allowed to answer the question in great detail, but um, I, I think a, a good answer to that question is that for Motorleaf, in order for us to build a very accurate algorithm for our clients, we basically acquire all the data that they're collecting in the greenhouse. And um, and a lot of their clients who are in the commercial greenhouse space, they invest millions of dollars even before they start growing into the infrastructure and the technology. And we're talking about sensors that watch every uh, square foot of the greenhouse. So that, mm-hmm. that covers you know, plant health and, and, um, and environmental conditions like temperature and humidity and such, and such things. Yeah, f- fair enough. Um, I guess more generally... How do you see the role of, of big data and, and AI as well advancing and impacting produce in, in, in the years to come? Yeah. Uh, um, I, I think to answer that question, I'm going to cite um, uh, this statement that I, uh, 
I basically received from a uh, grower that I visited recently. Um, so we were talking about um, the future of agriculture and, and data. And we both agree that, you know, if you're making decisions and these decisions are not based on numbers, you're just kidding yourself. Um, and I believe that that's true. Uh, self-driving cars are based on data. They're not based on intuitions. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're trying to save money, these are not based on intuitions. You're either overspending or you're not. So data is data. You can't fake it. For us, in order to be efficient, it has to be quantifiable. And that's the only way that the industry will grow and will be able to hit their metrics. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think as as more technology comes out in terms of, like you said, some of the sensors and, and things like that, that there's the, the more data that we can track, the, the more smarter we can make algorithms and, and the, this, the more advanced it, it all becomes. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, Scott. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, joining the, the, uh, the podcast. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Still to come, we speak with Gordon Robertson from Appeal Sciences and Darren Ward from Vineland Research and Innovation Center. But first, a word from our sponsor, Nature Fresh Farms. Hi, everyone. This is Cornelius from Nature Fresh Farms. It is truly an exciting time in agriculture. Farms everywhere are trialing and adopting new technologies that promise to transform our food system. Fresh produce leaders are expected to embrace these emerging technologies, something the Nature Fresh Farms team has always been bold about. For more information on our commitment to constant innovation, visit our website at naturefresh.ca forward slash blog. My next guest is uh, Gordon Robertson from Appeal Sciences. And Appeal is a company that develops and offers an edible coating. Uh, Welcome, Gordon. Uh, It's good to be here. Now, coatings aren't a new concept. From from what I've read, edible coatings using paraffin wax, you know, became commercialized around the 1930s. Other coatings gained more popularity through, through, through the 80s and 90s. Can, can you start off by talking about what makes Appeal unique from, from other coatings and, and the science behind it? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, when you think about Appeal, we're, we're really very different than anything else that's out there uh, in the solutions today. And what's driving that is we're really bringing our solution is really coming directly out of nature's playbook. Mm-hmm. It, the kind of bottom line, we, we utilize food to preserve food. You know, our belief is that the only thing that should be on food is food itself. Uh, and that's why we fought, that's why we utilize the materials in our, in, our, in our formulations that are really found in every bite of fruit and vegetables that uh, you eat on an everyday basis. And that's really what makes the appeal products. You know, kind of in the heart of that, we are the only plant-based solution out there today for freshness and really uh, mitigating food waste that benefits everybody in the supply chain, from the grower to the shipper to the marketer to the retailer and ultimately the consumer, because, you know, our solution goes all the way to consumption and into the consumer's home. So how, how has the magnitude or, or the role of food loss played in the importance and, and the development of appeal? I mean, food waste is obviously at the heart of it, and uh, and we see that um, you know we're bringing a solution that helps attract, address food waste, but actually just helps us look at the entire supply chain and how do we actually bring you know fresh fruits and vegetables to consumers around the world or even open new markets 
there's this tremendous opportunity for us to continue to reach out through the supply chain, serving everybody that sits along that in the process, mm-hmm. actually driving value for everybody. Certainly an exciting product. Um, now, let's say I'm a grower or a distributor um, or even a retailer that, that is partnered with Appeal. How does that product come to me? So we, we really offer our solution as a service. Um, and what we're really doing is how do we get the maximum shelf life benefit and food waste reduction in that service? So our teams, we go out there, we work around the world with our growers, our shippers, and our retailers. And uh, we really work to do the applications either in accumulation centers, let's say around the U.S. or in the European market, or we do it really at source. And so working with the growers specifically in their packing sheds, really driving as much efficiency and working within their supply chain uh, to make sure that we do the application without driving, uh, without driving uh, any additional significant cost in the system. Mm-hmm. And really what we're doing is we're applying, uh, we're, we're taking the powder and we are getting it to where it needs to be in the world. We are blending that with water and then we, uh, we get the produce wet and we get it dry and that's what actually is uh, in the process of the application itself. When we do that, what we're doing is we're leaving behind really uh, an imperceivably thin layer of edible plant material. So it's, as I said earlier, it's literally utilizing food to protect food. But that, that, that small layer, what it does really is creates a little extra peel that really slows the rate of, of gas exchange. So the rate that which moisture is leaving the fruit and the rate at which uh, oxygen is coming into the fruit, which is really the drivers of a breakdown of quality and decay. Mm-hmm. So when we do this, when we have this little extra peel that we're adding, we, we are basically extending shelf life by a factor of two to three, depending on the produce type that we're working on. Wow. And so like in the retail environment, a peel treated produce is then labeled and brand marked so our shoppers can see it. Uh, you know, our retailers know where it is. They're, mar- they're marketing it for the consumer out there. And we're really today, we're having thousands of searches through our website and people really looking for the appeal solution. And we do that in concert with our, with our grower partners working to get, to, to get the labeling inside of the packaging process and then working all the way through to retailers and the in-store activation, uh, the things that we can do at retail at that moment of truth uh, to create, uh, you know, a level of uh, a theater in the store so people can learn about the appeal process and the appeal solution and the benefit that it's bringing to them. It, uh, it sounds like an interesting challenge where that the process might look different depending on the crop or depending on, you know, where along the supply chain that product is going to be applied to the crop. Yeah, it's actually, it's one of the, the things that I found uh, very unique is I joined Appeal about a year ago and I came uh, from, uh, from the table grape industry. Uh, but the reality is, and you know this in the produce business, when you start to look inside the supply chain, it's not a cookie cutter event. No, definitely not. Right, has a very unique supply chain that that product has to flow through. So when we begin to work with our partners, we literally will bring, you know, our, our scientists, our engineering team, uh, our PhDs into that environment and say, okay, this is how the produce flows. Here is where we believe we can do the applications. 
to, to, to do it in the most efficient process so we're not driving additional costs associated with labor inside of, a, of a, let's say, a packing house. But every solution is unique. And even within categories themselves, they can be unique because, you know, not all, all, all avocado ha- uh, packing houses are created the same. Right. So it's always something that, that we have to work with. And so that really actually is the bound of our partnership uh, when we work back with our grower partners, because it's about working within their environment, not just trying to make it work so we can put the application on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. I, I saw earlier this week uh, a press release or uh, an article come across on the uh, supplier network that, that yeah. was that was announced. So I noticed a few uh, CPMA members there with the Sage and Del Monte and Alpine Fresh to uh, to name a few. Yeah, these are they're all they're all uh, very very strong partners of us, and we're we're proud that they've that they've chosen to work with Appeal because you know part of our solution is not only driving benefit for uh, the consumer and at the retailer level, but we also have to drive that benefit back with our grower packer shipper partners. Yeah, for sure. Let's take a step back. Um, so, w- what is the history and, and the story behind the company? Yeah, just to kind of give you the, the story that uh, that I'm familiar with, and I've got to tell it a few times as <laughs> you know, brought the technology forward. So, Appeal was founded in 2012 uh, by uh, James Rogers, who was a material scientist. He uh, he's kind of an expert in creating barriers uh, to achieve different performance benefits. So he's he was working in paints and things like that prior to uh, coming into looking at this challenge within the uh, fresh fruits and vegetable area. Mm-hmm. James really became very interested in, in the food waste crisis and really this hunger problem, right? You know, we're going to have 10 billion people on this planet and it's, you know, how do we feed them? And even today, you know, we, we have a significant population base. We are producing enough food, but we can't get it to them. So the yeah. supply chain can't support moving that product through the system. Yeah, the numbers are quite staggering. It's, you know, one third of, of yeah. food is, is wasted. and Here's another staggering number that, 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 that I grasped as soon as I joined uh, the organization, which was, you know, food waste, it, it's, it's not just something we're trying to do to make this a better planet. It's, it's about a $2.5 trillion loss in business opportunity for the industry, right? So these are big dollars that are mm-hmm. out there that can get recovered by everyone in the supply chain. You know, from from the grower all the way to the consumer. And I did see that uh, there was quite an investment, you know, in in the early years. I guess the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, was was an investor among amongst uh, many others. Yeah, there, there, there's been there's been a number, and just to kind of get some, and this is all publicly out, uh, uh, information that you can get, you know. And so when when James was saying, "Hey, can we?" You know, he's taking that material science idea. And so can we actually look at food as the barrier to help preserve food, right? So this is a, this is a big idea. And that's when he, he pitched this concept and it was funded originally by the, the Gates Foundation. And now really where it's taken us is, you know, seven years later and about $110 million in, in investment. Appeal is now growing to basically a global organization because we're following those supply chains that actually service the customers who are buying this product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is when now we're bringing this to a commercial perspective, right? Uh, the first five and a half years are about proving out the science. And now we're in this position where we, we have to begin to commercialize, commercialize this idea 
uh, with our growers and in our retail partners around the world. So when uh, when can we expect to start seeing products uh, up in Canada? Uh, actually, you can begin to start seeing them soon. I mean, it's uh, you can pick up appeal produce in many of your retailers. We're, we are working back with a number of the Canadian retailers now on initial pilot programs and discussions. And so it's definitely, uh, it's, it's, it's a place that we see that we want to be involved with in the very near future. And mm-hmm. again, we've had discussions with most of the retailers in the region. Um, and additionally, you know, there, there's ways that you can actually kind of get online to die today and buy a peel treated produce, like in finger line, some of the smallholder farmers that we're working with that don't really have a distribution network that they can lean into. And so they're utilizing appeal as a way to reach more consumers and, uh, we are doing some, you know, direct direct ship to uh, a, f- a few uh, uh, consumers out there in the world today, but really expanding those places where you can buy appeal treated produce. And you know, today in the U.S., we're we're close to having distribution in about fifty percent of the country uh, with uh, with all of the partners that we're working with uh, today. Wow, um, yeah, and I guess as as that shelf life gets longer, then that creates new opportunities for for distribution, maybe too. Yeah, and, and the things that we're really excited about there and this this notion of, you know, that it, it, the shelf life extension working with our partners is that, you know, our business is very quickly a global business. So we started really with the North America focus of the customers we serve, but now we've received regulatory approval in the, in the EU and we're working back with partners like Nature's Pride, which will now ex- expand the, the reach and the distribution of appeal to not only consumers here in the U.S. and Canada, but now we're going to be reaching the European markets. Mm-hmm. And in the not-too-distant future, we'll be doing treating and even more markets uh, around the world to help supply and meet the consumer demand that's, that's in front of us. Really exciting. Yeah, no, we're thrilled about it. And this, for all of your listeners out there, if there's anything that uh, people may have a question about, just feel free to reach out to me. I can you can get me at Gordon at appealsciences.com. Love to continue the discussions with with you know, your listeners and and many of the supplier base and the retailers uh, throughout the Canadian market. Awesome. Well, thanks uh, thanks so much for your time, Gordon. I really appreciate you uh, hopping on. Absolutely. Have a great day. Yeah. You too. Next up. Darren Ward from Vineland Research and Innovation Center to talk about their exciting work around robotics and automation. Welcome, Darren. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. So before we really uh, dig into the work coming from from the automation group at at Vineland, uh, can you talk a little bit about Vineland uh, more generally and, and the work that goes on at Vineland? For sure. We're an independent, not-for-profit research center, uh, and we work to improve the economic viability, sustainability, and competitiveness of Canada's horticulture sector. So under this kind of overarching mission, we have a number of different program areas. Um, One of those is around new varieties, so that involves both breeding from scratch and scouting for new varieties. the focus is on ones that will work well in Canada. So that is uh, both looking at, you know, the consumer side of things, um, as well as our climate and the pest and disease pressures that we look at uh, most predominantly in Canada. So we've had programs there for things like tomatoes, apples, uh, sweet potatoes and roses. 
Another program is around platform genomics. So we do uh, genomic work um, focusing on trait development and genomic services. Um, now this is done both for internal work within our breeding program, as well as uh, a service that we can do for others. We have a spin-off company called um, Platform Genetics. Mm -hmm. um, we also have a program around consumer insights. So this is where we bring the consumer into the picture, um, looking at their preferences and their motives. Um, so again, this is something that we use for our own internal programs. You know, for example, uh, tomatoes in finding out, you know, what consumers are really looking for in, uh, in things like color and texture and flavor. Um, but this is also a service that uh, we can offer to producers and processors that help them come up with their own new product development um, and with their marketing messages. Uh, another program is around IPM. So, of course, these days there's uh, a lot of uh, issues with pesticides. So this program aims to develop IPM solutions that uh, create alternatives and mm -hmm. reduce our reliance on pesticides. And also we have a program that is known as Greening the Canadian Landscape. So this focuses on green infrastructure, um, things like functional urban landscapes. Um, and, you know, we, we achieve this through species selection uh, and generating protocols that uh, ensure successful growing. Of course, we'll talk uh, a bit about our robotics and automation program as well. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, something new that we've got, Going on under that is uh, a systems integration service. I think we'll talk a little bit more about some of the futuristic things that we're doing. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that we do is uh, always try to remain in contact with the growers and producers and processors through outreach. Uh, and we, uh, we learned that a lot of them would like to be able to deploy automation that is, you know, you know more close or more at hand, um, things that are available today, either as off-the-shelf solutions or... Uh, as custom builds, but mm -hmm. that can be quite uh, intimidating by, you know, not having the internal resources to do, uh, uh, to put together effective systems or, uh, you know, just not being, not, not, not being aware of where to go to, uh, to get things that'll really work and understanding the automation problems and understanding an effective solution. So we've put together uh, an internal unit to, uh, to help out in that area as well. That's um, uh, that's quite the uh, portfolio of work. It is. It, it does sound like a lot of <laughs> mm -hmm. different things. Um, but what's kind of really cool about all of it is that, you know, we're supported by a, a great facility and a nice campus. We've got 200 acres of growing space. Uh, we've got a one-acre compartmentalized research greenhouse. Um, and, you know, it, it all comes together for, you know, a really unique combination and a nice pool of expertise that uh, work and collaborate well together. For sure. So it's uh, exciting to see what what's coming out of, of Vineland and um, you know the new science, new technologies that that are created to solve new problems. Uh, you know every every year, every couple of years, it certainly seems like there's there's new challenges for the, the produce sector generally, and um, new technology is always emerging to keep up and, and to uh, solve these issues as as they come along. One of those issues uh, is of course the challenge of, of a shrinking uh, labor pool. It's a reality that, that we're seeing in, in agriculture, and that's where the role of, of automation and, and uh, robotics uh, comes in, I think, quite a bit. So 
uh, with that in mind, I, I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about the the harvesting automation work uh, specifically. What what are, what are some of the specifics around some of the work that that's being done uh, when it comes to uh, robotics and automation? We've got uh, a couple of programs on the go right now at Vineland in terms of robotics and automation. You know, as I mentioned, there's the systems integration initiative, which is brand new, uh, but we've got some existing programs going on as well around um, automated uh, cucumber harvesting. That's a newer one that was kicked off recently. Uh, also automated mushroom harvesting and also a program around smart irrigation. What would you say are some of the drawbacks or challenges that, that people wouldn't necessarily always think of when it comes to automation in the fields? Probably the main challenge uh, comes to us from Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. um, she generates no two objects that are alike. Um, and, you know, variation is one of the things that can be really different or difficult to work with. So if you think about uh, automotive applications for automation, for example. I think that's something that comes to people's minds quite often. Mm -hmm. um, you know, robotic welding or something like that. That that happens in a staged setup um, where, uh, you know, there are fixtures and everything in there that hold everything just perfectly. Um, and the parts that are being worked on are all the same with, within, uh, you know, millimeters of differences. So it's a, it's a system that can be programmed to do the same thing over and over again, 24 hours a day. But certainly it's not the same in horticulture where we've got objects that uh, are variable in size and shape and color. Um, and we and need to be fragility to too, that. I think. Fragility for sure. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big one. But uh, one of the things that we really don't have as much control over is being able to stage things uh, to be exactly the way that we want them. Right. So one of, one of the, those, those big issues or benefits, I think, that of, of automation that, that helps solve is, is that, that alternative to the labor pool. Are, are there any other added benefits when it comes to harvesting automation? For sure. You could look at also the fact that uh, you, know, you can generate a very consistent pace uh, when we're working with a machine. The way that uh, an automated process can go can be very predictable. Um, so that certainly helps uh, you know, understand productivity rates and things like that. But it can also work 24 hours a day if you need. Yeah. Um, automation doesn't need to sleep, so that's a, certainly a nice benefit. And, and you know, one of the keys in being successful in all of that is to design a system such that, uh, you know, overall the return on investment looks good uh, when you compare it to manual um, harvesting. I guess another thing is that if everything is done right, going back to your point about fragility, um, we can improve the handling and uh, lead to less damage, which is definitely a benefit when uh, something down the supply chain is going to end up um, in front of the consumer and we want it to, uh, to look good. Yeah, of course. Um, so you'd mentioned the cucumber uh, project, and I've also read about uh, mushroom harvesting technology. Um, how did those projects come about? Basically, uh, we maintain a program of uh, regular outreach to growers. Uh, so we stay in contact with the industry to understand needs and pain points. Um, you know, sometimes growers come to us with ideas or sometimes we'll see trends uh, and come up with our own ideas. Um, either way, we work side by side with uh, the growers to make sure that the projects that we engage in you know, make sense and ultimately will uh, provide a positive impact. So you know, looking at mushrooms and 
cucumbers. Um, both of those crops are widely grown in Canada. Both use a lot of labor. Um, so that's, you know, two of the things that we're looking for right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mushrooms especially are an amazing crop. They've got a super short growing cycle. Uh, it's about five days and they can be harvested five or six times a day. Um, the conditions there are, are not great. They're grown in compost. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, the smell of the environment isn't, uh, isn't that good and it can be high humidity. So something where the turnover tends to be very high. So yeah, definitely lend itself to automation very well. Right. So it sounds like it's mainly driven by the growers? That's correct. Yeah. Would there be any other drivers, um, other innovation centers that you might partner with, universities that where, where some of this work comes out of? We certainly do collaborate. Um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it uh, definitely needs to be something that uh, will provide um, impact um, and do something to improve the uh, you know, economic sustainability and competitiveness of the uh, Canadian growers. So if those ideas uh, and projects come to us from the growers or something that uh, may have originated with uh, you know, a collaborator but utilizes our skill sets as well, um, but all of those sorts of relationships are on the table. Hmm. So we had mentioned a little bit about the, the fragility, the size, um, seasonality, all of these factors really, really come into play in terms of, you know, which crops might be most suitable for, for automation. Um, are, are there any crops that really stand out as ones that would particularly be challenging uh, for automation? Yeah, those aspects of, you know, going around uh, variation and fragility are really what come down to it. Um, and if you look at other things, and actually this kind of brings in, interesting um, alternate viewpoint into things, but uh, Mm -hmm. there's the aspect of the complexity and the amount of manipulation involved. And, you know, uh, for example, if you wanted to pick an apple from a tree, uh, a human takes probably less than a second to take a glance at that tree, reach into the canopy, find an apple that's buried back there, pull it out and, you know, miss, miss the leaves and the stems and everything that are in the way. Um, But, there's a huge amount of complexity involved in trying to get a robot to do the same thing. Um, So that kind of opens up another opportunity um, and gives us a chance to look at the growing systems as well. Uh, So I'd look at something like, you know, high wire cucumbers, for example, where we had the old way of growing them um, using uh, uh, the umbrella technique where the cucumbers might be obscured by leaves and stems quite a bit mm-hmm. um, versus high wire, which that technique by nature uh, tends to open up access to those cucumbers and keep leaves out of the way. So, uh, you know, it really lends itself to automation. And going back to that apple example too, um, you know, an old style apple tree versus a modern 2D orchard uh, that we have today. Um, those apples are just on a single plane with um, much less obscuring them. So it is much better for automation that way. So what's next for the automation group at Vineland? Is is there any uh, new projects coming down the pipeline? We're involved in some pretty substantial projects now that are definitely keeping us busy. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a, a lot of focus on moving those forward. Um, 
there was a recent announcement from Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada uh, that was some really great news. There was a call for proposals put out um, that was meant uh, to find proposals to stimulate development and collaboration in agri-food technologies, and we partnered with Alberta Innovates there uh, and formed the Canadian Agri-Food Automation and Intelligence Network, and we were a successful applicant. Um, so that's brought together a national network of companies in academ academia, um, Lindemar, MDA, and DOT Technologies, for example. Um, and the goal of the this network is to uh, accelerate the digitization and automation within our sector. So uh, it's going to be technologies like sensors, big data, robotics, and AI. Mm -hmm. uh, we see some great possibilities there for agriculture and agri-food industries. And we're definitely looking forward to the effort unfolding and seeing how we contribute in the uh, success, both from R&D and other perspectives. It's kind of early now, but mm -hmm. that's uh, definitely exciting. Very exciting. Um, also definitely looking to grow that systems integration initiative. Uh, we see lots of opportunity for producers and processors to increase productivity um, and efficiency through you know, very attainable technologies, things that you can have today that are not quite as futuristic as robotic harvesting. Um, so we definitely are available and would uh, welcome them to uh, reach out to us for a conversation on uh, how we might be able to help. And uh, no, other than that, yeah. we definitely continue with our outreach activities and speaking to growers, keeping our ear to the ground and watching trends to see what's next and how new technologies can get us there. When, when, you think, when people think of, of automation, there, there's so many pieces to that puzzle, you know, when it comes to big data and AI and, you know, the information that has to feed the robot first in order for, for that robot to decipher, you know, if, if an apple is ready to be picked or, or whatever it is. Um, so it certainly seems like uh, that, that collaboration is, uh, is, is certainly important and uh, really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, we're, we're excited about the possibilities. And uh, yeah, you make a good point. I think, you know, what a lot of people see is, you know, that finished product or that, uh, that demonstration of a finished product and, you know, don't really see all of those different pieces that mm -hmm. go together. So, uh, yeah, I know it's a very complex, but uh, really great to work on. Well, thank you so much, Darren. Um, it was great to, uh, great to speak with you and, and thank you for uh, coming on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Darren, Cedric, Scott, and Gordon for joining the podcast. A reminder that you can subscribe and review Produce Talks on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Until next time, fill half your plate with fruits and veggies, continue to seek out new knowledge, and basically never stop growing. <laughs>